you've probably heard on the internet, on social media, kind of the joke that goes around, if somebody kidnapped you or if you were taken hostage, what, what would you send? What kind of secret message would you send to your family that they would know something was wrong? Um, wonder what you would say. I, I would probably say um, to my wife, make sure you pick up extra mayonnaise on your way home or something like that. I have, uh, mayonnaise and I have a bad relationship. Um, if I were kidnapped as your pastor... Uh, and you saw something on social media that said, and tomorrow at Omaha Bible Church, we're going to be studying the book of Revelations. <laughs> you would know that somebody had kidnapped me because I would never say we're studying the book of Revelations because there's no such thing as the book of Revelations. But there is something called the Revelation. And if you have a Bible, you can find the Revelation. And as you're finding the revelation, I would suggest that perhaps one of the reasons why the Christian church in America is unhealthy regarding our present situation, regarding the future, is because we don't have a very good grasp on biblical prophecy. We don't have a very good grasp on what the Bible actually emphasizes about the future. Because we say things like the book of Revelations. <laughs> and that is a telltale sign that we really don't know what we're talking about. And we really don't know what the main thing is about the future. We don't really know who the main thing is regarding the future. And if it's the book of Revelations and it's about anything other than the main thing, it's no wonder we're so stressed. And it's no wonder we're so worried. It's no wonder we're so unstable. Because we think there's something called the book of Revelations. And if you think there's something called the book of Revelations and I've insulted you, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. My wife frequently reminds me to be nice. It's good to be married to my great wife. But there's no such thing. And I'm going to help you today. I hope I'm going to help everybody. Just by looking at the opening words of the Revelation. It's going to be great. It says in Revelation 1, 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. In one sense, I want to say, let's close in prayer. As we look to this book about the future, written to people who are going to be persecuted, written to people who are going to suffer, written to people who are going to be oppressed, not to mention, that's just by the governing authorities, not to mention by other religions, not to mention their own difficulties in life and in their own families. When we see that it is the revelation, the revealing, the grand, extraordinary revealing of Jesus Christ, it says it all. That's a preview of the whole book. It's pretty much how the book ends. So think with me about why this is so important. And by the way, this is, this is, this is a pre-sermon. We're going to look at biblical doctrines about the future today. It's the pre, it's the sermon in preparation for a prophecy conference, because that's what we're going to do in a few weeks. So we're, we're billing it as a prophecy conference like no other, because it's going to be about Jesus. 
<laughs> so it should be how all prophecy conferences are, um, but to kind of get you ready because I want you to benefit from all of the di- different sessions. So I'm going to speak on one of the sessions and Daryl Hart, uh, a historian who we really appreciate a lot around here. He's going to be speaking. My brother, Mike Abendroth will be here from Massachusetts and Michael Beck will be here from New Zealand. He's written an important book about this whole topic as well. I just want to at least get you ready, get you acclimated. Uh, if you're traveling and out of town and aren't going to be at the conference, you'll benefit from today. Uh, I don't plan to give away anybody's thunder today, uh, but to give you kind of a, a foretaste of the things we're going to talk about when we talk about biblical, right-headed, stable-minded, joy-bringing, not kooky, not weird, not speculative kind of prophecy. The revelation of Jesus Christ. If you don't catch anything else, just think about how encouraging and comforting that is. Let me tell you, Christians who are about to be persecuted, those are the kind of people he's going to write to. He's going to say these things are going to soon take place. Let me remind you of the one you're trusting in, Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Well, we know that, that that's a loaded name. We know it from Matthew one twenty one. I said it so many times when we did the Matthew series. Name him Jesus because anybody help me and make me feel good. He will save his people from their sins, right? Name him Jesus because it means God saves, Yahweh saves. And name him Jesus, Matthew one twenty one, because he will save his people from their sins. He's the deliverer. He's the savior. He's the redeemer. He's the one that sets you free. That's who Jesus is. So the revelation of the Savior. And when you're being persecuted and you're suffering and you're depressed and you're down and you're facing all kinds of complications, what you want, whether you realize it or not, is deliverance. Jesus is the ultimate deliverer and he delivers ultimately even from the Apostle Paul says, the last enemy and the last enemy is death. Okay, so far so good. I hope... The revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus the King. The King. In the con- that's what, that's what Messiah means. That's what Christ means. It's King. There have been many Kings in the Old Testament, many Messiahs, as I like to say, because it's true. David would have been one of them. Saul would have been another. But even all the, all the Kings, even the greatest of Kings, let's say David, pales in comparison because David was pointing forward to the ultimate David, the ultimate king. And if you have a king who's not corrupt, you have a king who's not in it for himself, you have a king who's not perverse, um, and every king ever has been some of those things, even the best of kings, we have Jesus, the Savior King. What can a king do for you? A king will make sure your needs are met. A king will make sure you're protected A king will make sure that you are all of the things. If it's a perfect, all-powerful, saving, delivering king, and here you are in the book of Revelation, even governing authorities against you sometimes. And you don't like those who are governing authorities, and they're not seeking your best interest, and they're not promoting justice, they're promoting injustice, and they're against you because you belong to the king of kings, and they don't like your morality as a Christian, etc. You get the idea. You know what we need? We need a big dose of biblical perspective, and it would be as simple as that. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the whole book is about that. The whole thing is ultimately about that. And you've heard it said before, you know, what's the book of Revelation about? Jesus wins. 
and it seems kind of casual and it seems kind of trite. But in reality, what you need to remember in the long run is Jesus wins, even if it doesn't look like he's winning. And if you're in Christ, then you win too. It's about perspective. It's about perspective. If you can have the right perspective, and, and I'll confess, I don't have the right perspective most of the time. I struggle with this. But it's why week in and week out, I come to Omaha Bible Church and I'm either hearing about or preaching about Jesus, <laughs> okay? The revelation of Jesus Christ, even if we're not in the book of Revelation. So perspective and the perspective can, can drive perseverance, right? I can face tomorrow. And the book of Revelation is a lot about perspective, about who Jesus is and who you are in relation to Jesus. And it can help you persevere. Revelation calls Christians to persevere a lot of times. And now I could do it. I can do it. So what I'd like to do, uh, maybe we'll end with the book of Revelation because there's a whole lot of great stuff in there, but that was just to kind of get us going. What I would like to do now is talk about some biblical doctrines that pertain to the future. Okay. Doctrine is kind of a, you know, in, a bad word anymore. It just means teaching. And in Christian and in Christianity, we say doctrine because it's official teaching. It's formal, uh, formal teaching. It's something important. So we're going to look at four biblical doctrines, four biblical teachings that relate to the future that can help you to have the right perspective so that you can be motivated to persevere. So we're not in Exodus today. Um, we will get back to Exodus. Next thing is golden calf. I tried to figure out how that could be a good prophetic metaphor for something, but I thought maybe we would just put it on hold. <laughs> I didn't really. <laughs> Four biblical doctrines that are going to help us with our perspective, and I'd like to end with the book of Revelation uh, if we have time to do that. So this is helping us as Christians. Yeah, I, Let's start with the first one. First, let's call it futuristic biblical doctrine. Number one is going to be something we talk about a lot around here, um, but I'll give you uh, new texts and angles that will be helpful, I hope. The first one would be justification. The first one would be justification. I'll define it. We'll look at Romans 5. If you have a Bible, you can find Romans 5. A lot of times, Christians forget that justification is prophetic. Um, it's eschatology. Eschatology is a fancy word for a study of the end or something that happens at the end. The eschaton, uh, the study of eschatology, the study of end times. Justification is eschatological. It's an end time thing. We don't think about that. We think end times, that's somehow this complicated chart. That's what end times is about. We don't think end times is about Jesus sometimes. Sadly, we forget that. And we don't think that the end is about justification, but it actually is about justification. And in Romans 5, we see that the end time reality that we experience now called justification is meant to promote perseverance. It's meant to have you in the here and now have the right perspective regardless of what you're facing because you know you've been justified. Okay? So, excited about this. My brother is going to do the session when he's here uh, called The Myth of Final Justification. And he's going to do that because of a lot of popular evangelicals even today really popular ones with really big followings are undermining the classic biblical doctrine of justification. And somehow now justification is not by faith alone in Christ alone. It's by faith in Christ and what you do. And if you can do enough, you'll be finally justified in the end. And that 
undermines confidence. It undermines assurance. It undermines the work of Christ. And so his session is going to be as spicy, <laughs> we might say. Okay, I'm not going to steal any of his thunder. I don't know how I could. He's the thunderous one. But I want to get you ready for that because I want you to see how important justification is as an end time reality so that when you attend that session, you say, yeah, this is important when people are saying you get in to heaven by faith alone in Christ alone, but you have to stay in by your good works. And I hope I do enough of them for God to finally accept me. It's no wonder why you can't sleep at night. If that's true, it's not true. Okay, Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, one says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to the actual words, but for now, just notice and focus on, we have been justified by faith. Well, you need to know a few things about justification. And if you're brand new, I can help you. If you're not brand new, I hope you can finish my sentences. This is actually a really big deal. This is, this is one of the major reasons why there was a Protestant Reformation. John Calvin said it's, it's something to the effect, it's the hinge upon which the door opens. It's, it's that pivotal. It's that important. Martin Luther said it's the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. It's really important. The Apostle Paul, page after page after page. But you need to know, to be justified means to be, decla- it, it, to be declared by a judge. So think courtroom. Think justice. Think judge. Uh, think forensic because it's legal. It's courtroom talk. And if you are justified, you are declared obedient. You are declared righteous. You are declared a keeper of God's law. Okay, so in God's court of law... Pat stands, no, Pat cowers, because Pat is a lawbreaker. I don't love God the way I should. I don't love neighbor the way I should, not to mention all the other things. And so in God's court of law, if I'm on my own, I would not be justified. I would be condemned. That's the opposite word in Romans 5, 18 and 19. I would stand condemned. The wages of sin is death, right? Condemnation. But if I, as our text says, have faith by faith, by trust, by dependence, I've been justified. So in God's courtroom, God is the judge. He declares Pat Abendroth perfectly just, perfectly righteous. He declares me a good person, a good citizen in his kingdom, even though Pat's not. Because it's by faith in Christ. I'm trusting in Christ. And so it's, it's super critical and important. But we know, if we've been around Christianity very much at all, judgment day comes in the past or now or in the future. I mean, what would most people say? It's in the future, right? I mean, how many, how many church traditions rightfully say he will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end? Something like that. Some of you grew up repeating that. That's actually really true and really right and really biblical. Uh, We're waiting for things like the great white throne. Read the book of Revelation at the end. Judgment day. Jesus talks about the separating of the sheep and the, uh, of the sheep and the goats. The sheep and the goats. It's future looking. Judgment day hasn't happened in the past. It's not happening now. It's happening in the future. Everyone will give an account. Justification is a 
futuristic doctrine. But it's talked about in the here and now for you if you trust in Jesus. Because He's your perfect representative, future judgment for you is certain. So much so that it says, what? In Romans chapter 5 verse 1? Therefore, since we have been justified. That's amazing. How, how could that possibly be? Well, it could be because of a substitute. It, it can be because I have faith in Him and He's the perfectly righteous one. Oh, I, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know my brother's going to be in Romans 8, so I won't go there, but we were singing about it, right? We're more than conquerors. We have nothing to fear. Nothing to fear whatsoever because we're in Christ. We've been justified by faith in Him. The future is absolutely certain because we've been justified in the here and now. This is extraordinary. This is amazing. This is, this is what helps me sleep at night. Judgment day is future, but we already know the outcome. And we know that this can be true because we have, as First Peter says, the just, Jesus, for the unjust. He's in our place. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Oh, this... There's so much good material to talk about here. I just love to think about this. But there's only so much time. This is where in my head I can't think fast enough. Is it two parts or one part? I don't know. Since you're in Romans 5, how about going to Romans 4? The most important thing about the future is Jesus. (laughs) And you being united to Jesus by faith. And that will help you maneuver and cope with the here and now because your greatest problem has been solved. Romans chapter 4 verse 25 says... Romans 4, 5 says God justifies the ungodly. So that's super important, but we won't go there now. Romans 4, 25 says, who was delivered up for our trespasses, talking about Jesus, Romans 4, 25, and raised for our justification. So at his resurrection, he's raised for our justification. Having lived a perfect life of obedience, having died a sinner's death, he couldn't stay dead because he didn't sin. He was perfectly righteous, so the grave couldn't hold him because he's righteous, the wages of sin is death, but he never sinned. He always did the right thing. It was impossible for Jesus to stay dead, and he's in the grave on our behalf. As he's raised, he's raised for our justification. As sure, in other words, as sure as he's been raised, you'll be raised unto newness of life. As sure as that happened, it's true for you is the idea. We won't take the time to go there, but in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it talks about Jesus being justified. The ESV says vindicated, but it's the exact same Greek word for justified. Jesus was vindicated by the Spirit. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was justified. God officially, formally declared Jesus righteous. Guess why? Because he really was righteous. Because he really had kept the law perfectly. He really fulfilled all righteousness. And so when he was raised, God officially, formally declared him righteous. Guess what? Because he was and he is. But he did that for us so that we have justification. So 
You can't get any more justified. Not according to Romans, not according to classic, traditional, reformational, Protestant realities. It's why we have assurance. It's a key reason why we have assurance. It's why opponents to biblical Christianity hate assurance so much. And they don't like the doctrine of justification because it's so certain and it's so sure. Paul's uh, questioners, they're so concerned about this that in Romans chapter 6, they they heard him right. Their conclusion is, does this mean we can just behave however we want? And he says, no, 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 no. But in one sense, I want to say, at least they got the point. Your salvation is so sure, it is so secure. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now, present possession, have peace with God. And read Romans 8, you're never going to lose your peace with God if you have true peace with God by faith in Christ. Isn't it good? It's great. It's wonderful. Justification, future judgment is already I don't know why I'm doing this for effect. I don't know, right? It's just, it's all done and dusted, as they say, across the pond. It's settled. This is why we love Christ. This is why we eat and drink in remembrance of Him at communion. It's to give assurance. It's, it's to remind us. It's why when we have a baptism, I frequently say, watch this picture so that you can be reminded of what it means. Died with Christ, raised with Christ unto newness of life, united with him receiving all of his benefits. It's, it's awesome. It's wonderful. Oh, and remember 1 John chapter 2, it says, I'm paraphrasing, don't sin. Right? Mr. and Mrs. Christian and your children, sin is bad for you. Sin is a bad idea. Don't break God's commandments. That's what sin is. Sin is lawlessness, chapter 3. So just for your sake, for the glory of Christ, for your neighbor's sake, for your family's sake, don't sin. But then what does it say? But, but if you do, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the law keeper, right? Jesus Christ, the righteous and justification is you being declared righteous, even though you're not by faith in him. But you know what? He's still your righteousness. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so if you want to play the scenario out, if Satan is the, the accuser of the brethren, and that's what the Bible says, so I don't know if it, it works like this, but you get the image. So, Pat struggles with sin because Pat is not perfect yet. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a bit. So Satan can rightfully go to God if it plays out this way. I don't know and say, look at Pat Abendroth. He does not deserve heaven. Pat Abendroth does not deserve any of the blessings. He doesn't deserve adoption. He doesn't deserve inheritance. He doesn't deserve to be an heir. He doesn't deserve any of those things. In fact, if the wages of sin is death, he should face eternal death. The accuser of the brethren can rightfully say that about me, and he can say it about you. But we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so Jesus, if it plays out like this, could then say, he's mine. And God the Father would never do this, but for effect, so we understand, if it played out, well, well, who are you? I'm the righteous one. The just, which is the same word, for the unjust, for Pat. This is great stuff. Some people don't want you to know about it, though. 
Because they think the best way to motivate you is by fear. In biblical Christianity, you're motivated out of gratitude. You're motivated in chapter 12 of Romans because of all the great stuff that's happened in Romans 1 to 11 and what it means to be in Christ and united to Christ by faith. And then and therefore now, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, which is shorthand for 1 to 11. And I'm paraphrasing now. Do the right thing. Live the right way. Have your whole life be an act of worship. See, it's out of gratitude. It's totally different from every religion that's ever, ever, ever been created by human beings. It's totally different. Should we move on to the next one? Oh, no, we, we, we missed the practical part, just like Pat. Okay, so, now let's go to verse 2. Here, here's the practicality of justification. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Earlier I was talking about Pat cowering. I need to be cowering if I'm going to be in the presence of almighty, glorious, grand God who knows my sins. But because I have Jesus, because I have been justified by faith in him, he says we stand bold, confident. We're not kneeling down. I'm not saying we don't show respect, but he's using the image on purpose. We stand before God. Who, who, who could ever do that other than Jesus? We stand before him in which we stand and we rejoice. See, it brings joy. It brings the right perspective in hope of the glory of God. And think about how if you are on your own and you think glory of God is talking about the, the, the significance of God and in the weightiness of God. It's a word that, that has to do with heavy. The grandeur of God and the greatness of God and the power of God and the uniqueness of God. I stand on my own as a sinner. I don't stand before God for a second, not to mention rejoicing in the glory of God. I'm cowering just thinking about the glory of God. I'm terrified and utterly undone thinking about the grandeur and, and greatness of God. If I'm sane... But if you're in Christ by faith, united to Christ by faith, you stand. And you think about the greatness of God and you say, yes, this is great. Because I've been justified by faith. See, you're going to be accused of being arrogant. And I get that. I'm sympathetic to that accusation. Who do you think you are? You stand before God and you consider his grandeur and majesty and you say, this is awesome. I'll tell you who you think you are if you do that. A person who's been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and the finished work of Christ alone. Arrogance would say somehow you have to keep working for it when he actually accomplished it. How confusing is that? It's so good rejoicing. Pastor, help me to rejoice. I don't have joy in my heart. I'm so flustered by... All I had to do to get ready for the sermon yesterday, and I don't really mean this, I sat in the chair for a long time, not just yesterday. But in one sense, all I had to do to get motivated was just listen, listen to my, my podcast news feed. <laughs> I was like, man, our world is so jacked up. There's so many wrong things happening. I was like, this is awful. And now I'm really motivated to talk about the future. <laughs> Therefore, having been justified by faith, my biggest problem's taken care of. So now I can deal with the here and now kind of stuff. 
Doesn't mean it doesn't matter at all, but it's not the ultimate kind of thing. Here he goes. He says uh, in verse three, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. See, it's bringing perspective to things. Again, he's not saying suffering doesn't matter and you just need to have a better attitude and that kind of stuff. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul would say we should rejoice with those who rejoice. We should weep with those who weep. He's not discounting the reality of pain and suffering and death or any of those things. But do notice in the midst of our suffering, because of the reality of being justified in Christ, we can rejoice. It's so amazing that it's there on purpose. And he talks about all of these great things. I'm going to have to skip some of the great things for now. But in verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we now, oh, that's it's, it's looking to the future, but it's a present reality. Now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So zero fear of condemnation, zero fear of wrath. It ends with, in verse 11, now received reconciliation. Man, that's a, that's a whole lot of assurance. That's amazing. That's wonderful. All of the conditions have been met by Jesus, and that's why we say trust, faith, belief, they're all synonyms for the same word. The empty hand of faith or something like that we talk about. Resting. Somebody asked me not long ago, they said, pastor, a pastor asked me, I loved it. Upon meeting me, he said, what must I do to be saved? I like it. I said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Oh, that's because that's what Peter says in the book of Acts. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Yep, that's it. How could that be enough? Because he did everything right. And he died a sinner's death as if he had done everything wrong. And he was raised from the dead officially formally, legally declaring by God the sacrifice is acceptable. So good. So good. I've been accused of being forenzocentric. I like that. It looked good on a t-shirt. Forenzocentric? Yeah, because you talk about justification all the time. This forensic courtroom thing. And it came from somebody who wants to get Christians to obey by some other reason other than gratitude. I think the Apostle Paul is forenzocentric. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we now have peace with God. Yes. We better do another one of these. We've got four. Looks like we're going to do two today. And in... Not next Sunday, but the next Sunday, Vineet Sasane is going to be here from India. I've been chatting with him this past week, so it'll be great to have Vineet here, um, spending the week with us, actually, and the week of the conference. And his brother, who we're supporting in seminary, Aaron, uh, he will be here for the conference as well, spending time with us. So looking forward to lots of things happening in the days ahead. So we'll do part two of this next Sunday. Then we'll have Vineet with us, and we will do Exodus, I promise. I was asked this morning, are we doing Exodus today? I said, I'll say the word Exodus. Now, we could do Exodus, though, because in the book of Revelation, it talks about how they're singing the song of Moses and the Lamb. And maybe you remember, maybe you don't, but when we saw that, when we saw the song of Moses in the book of Exodus, it was so interesting. They were redeemed. They were set free, and they had a good, not perfect, but a good mediator 
who led them out of slavery. Who was their good mediator in Exodus? Moses. Moses was a good mediator. God used him to lead them out as the go-between guy. But in the book of Revelation, as we look to the future, oh, remember, it's the revelation of weird, confusing charts and graphs. No, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. They're singing the song of Moses because even Moses was looking forward to the ultimate Moses, the ultimate mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he leads us out of ultimate enslavement. So you see the similarity, but you see the huge difference too. So I got a little exodus in. All right, now let's do second futuristic biblical doctrine that helps with perspective, helps with perseverance. And that is the biblical doctrine of new creation. New creation. And we find it all over the place. But how about if we go to 2 Corinthians 5? Because it's the classic go-to. I memorized it when I was converted as a college student and was involved in the Navigators. And we had these scripture memory cards. And one of the very first, maybe the first one, I don't remember. Um, imagine that. You're doing scripture memory and you don't remember. But... One of the first ones was 2 Corinthians 5.17. I confess to you that probably for at least 20 years of my Christian life, I didn't know what it was about. But I'm thankful that they made us memorize it. Okay? 2 Corinthians 5.17. Some of you already know where I'm going. May the Lord bless you. Pray for me. Um, go find somebody else who doesn't know about this stuff after church and tell them about it. But some of you are less familiar and I can't wait to show you. I mean, this is more of this simple, awesome, amazing stuff. Okay, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, we already know how a person becomes in Christ, united to Christ by faith. How does that happen? Please answer. <laughs> it happens by faith. We just saw it in Romans chapter 5. So if anyone is in Christ, that happens by trusting in Christ, that happens by believing in Christ. So if anyone is, in, is believing in Christ and therefore united to Christ, therefore if anyone, so anyone I think here means anyone, if anyone is in Christ, united to Christ by faith, he is a new creation. New American Standard says it that way. NIV says it that way. I think King James says new creature. Thank you for playing. Uh, <laughs> It, 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 it's a good idea, new creature, but really most literally is the way most of our English translations say it's, it's new creation. So it's, I'm so thankful that most translations do it that way. It's true, we're new creatures, but we're new creation. In fact, literally, take the word a out or a out if you'd like to. Because it's not actually literally there. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. I like the effect. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. What's the idea? The idea is you're already a part of the new creation. That's, that's the idea. It's awkward when you take it that way, but it's meant to be awkward because it's profound. It says the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in so many ways, that's simply not true in practice. And so we say, how could this possibly be? How could it possibly be that we are new creation if we're in Christ? Obviously, I don't care what the question is. Jesus is the answer. (laughs) 
If we're, if we're in Christ by faith, we're new creation because he's new creation. And when does that happen? When does he bring about the new creation? When does he inaugurate? When does he begin to unveil the new created order, the new creation? You may or may not know, but it's always tied in the New Testament to the resurrection. When Christ is raised, it's, it's kicking off the new creation order, right? Because he's raised for his people and his people are going to be raised. And so, for example, in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14, in Revelation 3 14, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, it's talking about Jesus, every, every commentator agrees with that, the beginning of God's creation. Jesus is the beginning of God's creation. Think with me. Think theologically. Is, is that true? Well, it's true because it's biblical, but if we take it out of context and make it mean something it's not suggesting, it's not true. We're not Jehovah's Witnesses. Jesus is not the beginning of God's creation in that sense. He's the eternal son. He existed before the foundation of the world. Read Ephesians chapter 1. So how is it that he, Jesus, is, as it says in Revelation 3.14, the beginning of God's creation? Well, we read it in context. He's already been incarnated in the Middle East, he became a human being. He's already lived a historic death or life. He's already died. He's already been raised from the dead. After all of those things, he now is called, you see, he now is called the beginning of God's creation because of his resurrection. Because his resurrection guarantees newness of life. That's why. That's why this, this fulfills Isaiah's end time prophecy. The later chapters of the book of Isaiah talk about this very thing, very thing. Isaiah 65, 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former thing shall, shall not be remembered or come into mind. Uh, excuse me. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19 says something similar, doing something new, new creation. If you are a Christian, you are already considered a citizen with all of the benefits of the new creation. Hasn't happened yet, because if we keep reading the book of Revelation, it happens in the future. We're waiting for the new creation to become realized, to become actualized, to become something that happens when Jesus returns. But it's so amazing that we can think about the coming new creation. We're not going to go there for the sake of time, but we can look at the text and we look, look at the end of the book of Revelation and he's making all things new destruction of the old, creation of the new. I just want you to know for today, at least, if anyone is in Christ, he is, he is new creation. And again, how can that be? Because his work is done. He's been raised not just for himself, but for his people. It's as good as settled. It's as good as done. We are members of we are a part of the new creation that's awesome why didn't somebody tell me that a long time ago why didn't somebody make it that simple for me a long time ago 
I wish they would have. I hope it's helping you. I hope you can be trained to be a good missionary and help other people to understand 2 Corinthians 5.17. There's a sense in which 2 Corinthians 5.17 isn't true because you haven't experienced it yet. But there's a sense in which it's true because Christ has. And He's done what He's done on behalf of His people. Is that, is that complicated? I don't think it's complicated. And it helps me with my perspective. I'm so fed up in so many different ways. Why do I, why, why do I put myself through it? In July, I tried my best to not listen to any news podcasts. And I confess my sins. I started listening toward the end of July. I think the news matters. I actually care about what's going on in the world. I want to do my part to make Babylon the best Babylon it can be for my family, for myself, and for my friends, neighbors. But I have to remember, this is not heaven. This is not the new Jerusalem. But I am a member of it. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is new creation. Okay, I'll listen to a little bit more news. Um, I think I can face tomorrow a little bit better. No matter what happens. The Apostle Paul in Galatians, and we'll end on this. He's fighting with these false teachers who believe in Jesus, but it's not justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You know what? You have to believe in Jesus and you have to do certain Old Testament law things. You have to do certain obedience things, like circumcision. That's, that's what was going on then. Today, it's typically something other than circumcision. You get the idea. And he's fighting with them. And it's not fun to fight unless something's kind of not right with you. But he's fighting with them, and that would have been hard and frustrating, but he knows it's worth it. Listen to what he says about this. Galatians 6.15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. You know what? This is so much what it's not about. But what is it about? He says, but a new creation. He's talking about the same thing we're talking about. And how is it that you become a member of the new creation? It's not by doing certain obedient things. It's by being in Christ, which happens by faith. And so I love the starkness. It's not about that. It's not about that. It's not about that. You know what ultimately life is about in the end? It's about new creation. Your greatest need is to be ready for judgment day. And the way to be ready for judgment day so you can enter the new creation is to be in Christ and then you're already a part of the new creation. Galatians 3.2 says, Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's not you get in by faith in Christ and you stay in by your obedience, and if you do obey enough, you'll finally be justified on judgment day. Are you so foolish? It's amazing how many Christians, conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical, supposedly reformed Christians, get in by obedience, stay in by your good works, because there's a final justification coming that's based upon your works, not the work of Christ. And the Apostle Paul says, are you that foolish? It's all of Christ. It's all of Christ. 
We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time in your word, talking about biblical doctrines, talking about justification, talking about new creation. May it be good for our hearts, good for our perspective. May it allow us to have joy, even in the midst of hardships. Every single one of us in this room struggles and will struggle regardless of who we are, regardless of our ages. We live in a broken world. Help us to remember that this is not the new Jerusalem. Help us to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he returns, will not send any of us away if we're united to him by faith. And may that motivate us to do right things out of gratitude for the glory of Christ and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.